This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today's big topic, lessons from the midterms for the Democrats, maybe even for the Republicans. Later in this hour, Sasha Abramsky will talk about the Southwest, Arizona, Nevada, uh, Texas, and California, and especially Orange County, where, according to the nonpartisan Cook Political Report, it's now virtually certain that Orange County will be represented by zero Republicans in Congress in 2019. Also later in this hour, Katha Pollitt will comment on women candidates. Democrats elected 23 first-timers to the House, while Republicans elected one. First up, John Nichols on Democratic victories in states where Trump once won. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, John Nichols, of course, is the nation's national affairs correspondent. His most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. We reached him today in Madison. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Well, the first we need to get an update on what is going on in Florida. Uh, this afternoon was the deadline for the machine recount. Where do we stand at this hour? The Senate race there is between uh, the incumbent uh, Bill Democrat, Bill Nelson, and the evil Republican Governor Rick Scott. And also what's happening <clears throat> What's happening in the governor's race, I choke up when I say the words Ron DeSantis and uh, our hero, progressive Democrat Andrew Gillum. Well, let's, let's go to the answer to your core question, what's happening in Florida, and that's easy. It's a mess. Um, pretty close to as bad as anybody's ever seen. Today, a federal judge in Florida um, said from the bench that we are the laughing stock of the world. Um, and, and he actually said, if I've got it correct, I believe it's laughing stock year after year, election after election, and we choose not to fix it. Um, so you get the picture of how bad it is. Here's what we know uh, as of this afternoon. The machine recount, and people should understand what a machine recount is. That's where you take the ballots and you feed them back through the same machine that they should have gone through in the first place, right? Yes. Um, but if the machine didn't record it right in the first place, there's a good chance it's going to record it right the second time around, too. Same machines. Um, but, the same machines. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you repeat, you repeat your error, okay, um, because a machine recount is different than a hand recount. A hand recount, you actually look at the ballots and you figure out, oh, this person tried to mark it for Andrew Gillum. It's just a light mark, and so we can easily count that. That's fine, right? But that doesn't, that doesn't work in a machine recount. So we did a machine recount of this incredibly close race for governor uh, where the difference is 0.5 four percent um and what it found what amazingly enough you're going to be shocked by this john it found things were pretty much as they were because <laughs> oh, you repeated the steps right yeah so what that says is that it's being said now that andrew gillum has lost however andrew gillum is saying oh whoa 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 whoa, whoa. hold it um palm beach county one of the biggest counties 
uh, in the state, and really a, just a you know core Democratic county, overwhelmingly so. Um, Palm Beach County didn't complete the recount in any of the three contested races, and so there's still like a mess going on there. And then Hillsborough County, another big, pretty Democratic county, um, came up with different figures. And so there's all kinds of confusion there, um, and they're not sure what's exactly going on. And so everybody's trying to lock this thing in without clarity. So Gillum is saying, hold it. You know, he would, he's going to be back at this process perhaps in court, um, you know, looking to have some sort of, you know, better count. And here's why that makes sense, John. In the Senate race, it looks like we're close enough to have a hand recount where they actually will go through the ballots and and review them. So let me ask you this question. If you're going to hand recount one race that's very, very close, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of uncertainty, Yes. why wouldn't you do them both? I see the point that you're trying to make here. If the human eye can, can determine the voter's intent, the ballot should be counted. That's the basic principle here. Yeah, it is. And this is something I learned doing the um, doing a book on the Florida fight uh, in 2000. I was down there a lot. I looked at all the fight. I looked at, you know, kind of all the process. And you know what you find out? Mm. For all the rigmarole, counting ballots isn't that hard. <laughs> the fact is that if honest players sit around a table, and these can even be partisans. They can be people who disagree with one another. Yeah. But they sit around the table and review them. They may argue a little bit, but by and large, they can sort it out. Um, and there is, and this is one final thing I'll throw in the mix here, John, just for reference, because it, it will sort of blow people's minds. It goes so against the way this is all discussed. There's no rush. Excellent point. They don't square anybody in until January. Excellent point. I have one other question for you about Florida. If you look in many newspapers and websites... You see a headline like, Republicans say there's voter fraud, Democrats say they want to count every vote. What do you think about that kind of he said, she said coverage, especially in Florida? Well, I mean, look, here's the, again, I'll go back to my uh, federal judge, and his name, by the way, is uh, Mark Walker, U.S. District Judge Mark Walker, and he said, uh, we have been the laughingstock of the world election after election, and we choose not to fix it. Well, that's sort of the answer to your question, right? Because people say, you know, Republicans say, oh, voter fraud, voter fraud, you know, and stuff like this. And other people have, you know, all these complaints. You know, all the back and forth that he said, she said, if you will. Um, when you could fix it, right? You realize other states, it doesn't melt down every time, right? So at the end of the day, it seems as if Florida political folks would rather argue than clean things up. But I am here to arbitrate the argument. If okay. you will. I, will, I will tell you who is right and who is wrong. Please. Um, the Democrats are right because, of course, in an election, the concept you want to begin with is you count every vote, right? I mean, that's, that's a basic concept. And voter fraud is a unicorn. A unicorn. In other words, a, 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 an imaginary uh, animal. You got it, my friend. Um, you know, we live in a country where we're lucky if we get half of our people out to vote, right? Yeah. So 
realistically, um, our problem isn't people cheating to vote. Our problem is that we got a heck of a lot of people that just aren't voting. And uh, so we must err on the side of getting more people to vote and hopefully counting more votes. That's, that's our goal. Um, and it's been warped, frankly, and, and, you know, really made dysfunctional by uh, partisans. And, and I'll be very honest with you, uh, this can be partisans on both sides. I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm going to be very careful about telling you that Democrats are always the innocents uh, because I covered Chicago. Yeah. Right. And I've seen I've seen both sides do bad things. Yeah. But I will tell you that that if we if we're basically on it, we try to be as honest as we can about this. We really, really, really should um, try to get maximum turnout elections, try to count them as well as we can. And, um, you know, Bill Nelson down there, it, I think he's doing God's work. He's suing to get to require a hand recount of all the ballots in the Senate race. I don't know for sure. We'll see if he gets it. Um, but if he does get it, um, then hopefully Andrew Gillum uh, will make a practical case to a judge that as long as you're doing the Senate race, you might as well do uh, the gubernatorial race as well. And by the way, if I could just even make it more complicated, sure. there's an incredibly close race, a closer race for Secretary of Agriculture, which they're almost certainly going to have to count. So they're going to be in there doing it. Um, and really, at the end of the day, weirdly enough, everybody comes out better if we count them all. Because even if the person you want to have win doesn't make it, um, you still have, you know, the average person. You'll have partisans on all sides, right? But the average person will say, okay, you know. It was a mess and it was complicated, but I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied that this yeah. person is my governor. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to shift the uh, geographical focus here to talk about three uh, uh, key states uh, closer to you in Madison that uh, two years ago gave Trump his Electoral College victory that horrified us so much, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, last week all three of them elected Democratic governors and Democratic senators. It's a really important question for Democrats now is, how do we understand the change? What changed in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin between 2016 and 2018? And what, will be, what, what can we learn from this for 2020? Well, there you go. That's a pretty good question there, uh, my friend. Thank you. Um, and... You know, here's, here's where we're at for what it's worth. Um, we have, uh, in the upper Midwest, uh, you know, competitive states in uh, Wisconsin for sure, Michigan to somewhat lesser extent, Pennsylvania around the Great Lakes, a, a little bit more Democratic. But basically, these are all competitive states which both parties compete for and which both parties have governed in recent years. And so when you're in this situation... Um, close elections are to be expected. Trump took advantage of that in 2008. Um, you know, he campaigned hard in these states. He focused on them, and wisely so. Hillary Clinton took them for granted, and Trump achieved narrow victories. When you add up all the votes that, that gave him his advantage in these states, uh, John, it comes to under 80,000 votes yeah, in all it's, three it's, states out of millions cast. So it's startling. It like Trump had, he didn't sweep through in a landslide, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and he didn't get a majority 
of the vote in these days. He got a plurality because you had third-party candidates, things like that. Now, um, you tell me, John, and I will work from your premise here. Do you think that Donald Trump has been a, a really great, unexpectedly unifying and successful I president? I know where you're going with this. What has changed from 2016 to 2018 is we have seen Donald Trump in action in the White House, and people in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin have been horrified and gone to the ballot box to express their horror. Kind of nailed it there, John. <laughs> and, you. Um, and, and you see, this is this is where it gets gets useful, frankly, in, in my view. Or, um, that two things happen that are different. Number one, the experience of Trump is real. Um, I think it has clarified our politics in every state in this country. With all due respect, we just we not long ago got a Democratic senator elected from Alabama. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you know we're we're starting to see some movement there, right? And and. That's step one. Step two is that um, there's in all three of these states, Democrats really did get clarity. Now, remember, in Pennsylvania, they already had an advantage, right? They had the incumbent governor and the incumbent senator, and they were likely to win those. In Michigan, they had had eight years of Rick Schneider, a Republican governor who used the power of the state to take over cities, school boards, local government. Uh, and impose so-called emergency management. A guy who really was a radical anti-Democrat, anti-small-D Democrat. And, now, you know, you may have heard about Flint. Yeah. Flint. So, I mean, this guy's a really bad governor. Um, and the people around him were quite bad. And they had defended him. And so the Democrats had, they got unity. They got their act together. Um, and they had an ability to run not just against Trump, but also against Rick Schneider. Same in Wisconsin. Scott Walker, very controversial governor, a guy that a lot of people didn't like anyway. When you combine the, the, the load he's carrying of, you know, questions and uncertainties with the Trump factor, you see a shift. But here's the big thing, John, that's really significant. In addition to kind of focusing, you know, their arguments, which I think the Democrats did pretty well in all three of these states, in Wisconsin and Michigan, something else happened that was quite fascinating. They really diversified their tickets. Huh. And so it, 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 check this out. Um, Wisconsin, Michigan, and, and Illinois all just elected new Democratic governors. They'd all had Republican governors before. In each of those three states, the lieutenant governor is an African-American. And so it, it first time, right, you know, in, in Michigan and Wisconsin, first time they've got an African-American lieutenant governor, number two position in the state. So they brought people onto their tickets, right? They opened up their process. And then here's where it gets even more interesting. The new attorney general of Wisconsin, not also Democrat, is a 37-year-old former federal prosecutor who left his job to become an advocate for voting rights. Wow. The new attorney general of Michigan is the leading LGBTQ advocate in the state. State, wow. Um, who also had a long history in civil rights and activism. And, and she got into the process. Imagine this, John. The new attorneys general of both, uh, both Michigan and Wisconsin have never run for office before. Fantastic. The first time they came in and they were drawn in as young activists to say, we can use these offices to do good. Um, and one other, if I give you one other element here, please. Um, that, that new lieutenant governor I mentioned in Wisconsin, 
Um, 31-year-old civil rights, labor rights campaigner, uh, somebody who really has an organization sensibility. That new uh, lieutenant governor in Michigan, former national director, D.C. national director for MoveOn.org, a guy who came out of organizing activism. And so, you know, we focused a lot in this race correctly on Andrew Gillum, Stacey Abrams, Beto O'Rourke, these people who are bringing this sort of new model of exciting politics, opening things up. Well, what I, what I want to emphasize to you is on these tickets, especially in Wisconsin and Michigan, where they had really pretty much complete flips of their statewide races from Republican to Democrat, on these tickets, you had people who um, are a part of that, that new wave in our politics of nominating folks who really do come out of an activist sensibility and who really are about building a mass turnout election uh, in which you reach out to young people, to disenfranchised communities, and it worked. It worked. Sorry, we're out of time. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, always great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure, my friend. Keep it up. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the TrumpWatchPodcast.com. Next up, more political analysis from Sasha Abramsky. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Katha Pollitt on women candidates who won and women candidates who lost. But first, political analysis from Sasha Abramsky. He writes regularly for The Nation and other publications. He's the author of several books, including The American Way of Poverty, The House of 20,000 Books, and most recently, Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. Sasha Abramsky, welcome back. John, good afternoon. Well, let's start with Arizona. You covered the election in Arizona where Democrat Kirsten Sinema won the Senate seat after a long, long count, the seat being vacated by by Republican Jeff Flake. She was not declared the winner until Monday after almost a week of vote counting. Many people consider Kirsten Sinema's victory the biggest win for Democrats since Donald Trump was elected with important implications for 2020 since Arizona has been such a bedrock Republican conservative state for, you know, our whole lifetimes. Uh, what what did you see of this race when you were there? What can you tell us about Kristen Cinema? How did she do this? Well, I think this idea of it being the most important race, there's so many important election victories that we can sort of squabble over and say, well, this is the most important. So there's obviously Cinema's race in Arizona. There was Doug Jones in Alabama last year. There are a whole bunch of really important governor's races and so on and so forth. 
Um, but I think the thing about Arizona that's fascinating is for about a decade at least, people have said this state is due to go purple. Yeah. That the reason it's staying so red is that a disproportionate number of older, whiter voters are voting and a disproportionate number of younger, non-white voters are not voting. And so there's been this tremendous effort over the last few years to register people to vote, to really sort of knock on doors and do that old-fashioned, on-the-ground political organizing. And what happened last week in Arizona was all of that work paid off. And so it paid off with the very close election result where cinema eventually was declared the victor. And it also paid off in Congressional District 2, which is a race I spent a lot of time covering. It runs from the eastern suburbs of Tucson all the way to the New Mexico border. And it's been one of these seats that's gone back and forth over the years. And last week, the Democrat won not by one or two percent, but by an absolutely huge margin. It wasn't even close by the end of the night. And so I think cumulatively, what we're seeing in Arizona is the same kind of thing that happened in California. You had this period in the early 1990s where California's politics swung to the right. It got very conservative on immigration, got very conservative on crime and punishment issues. And that created a backlash. And out of that backlash, modern Californian politics was born. And I think we're now seeing the same thing in Arizona. It went through this period where it had very tough anti-immigration laws. It had this extremely right-wing state legislature. It had Sheriff Joe Arpaio in Maricopa County. And now all of that has created a perfect storm backlash. And Democrats last week were in a prime position to take advantage. The Kirsten Cinema victory depended in part on the demographic changes uh, underway in Arizona, but also let's not neglect the politics of this. She ran as a centrist. She she focused very much on, on health care, on protections for people with pre-existing conditions, but she did not support Medicare for all. She talked about a secure border. Um, and people, some of our pundit friends, are contrasting the centrist victory that Kirsten Cinema won in Arizona with Beto O'Rourke's defeat in Texas running on a very progressive Democratic left-wing uh, campaign. Some Democratic strategists are concluding there's a crucial lesson in this contrast that it's the centrist candidates who have the best chance of winning uh, in the Sun Belt. I wonder if you agree with that. No, no, I don't. And I'd, I'd actually push back on it. I think Cinema ran a good campaign. And she ran a good campaign, as you said, on these very sort of select specific issues, especially around um, healthcare access. And she specifically sort of painted herself as not being on the left of the Democratic Party. Uh, she also benefited from the fact that she was running against an extremely mediocre candidate. Martha McSally had been a very bad person, not a bad figure in the House of Representatives, very ineffective. She really never created strong bonds with her constituents. And when she moved over from Congressional District 2 to run in the Senate race, she was a sort of wounded candidate going in because she had this poor track record. So I think cinema benefited from that. But coming back to what you're saying about Beto O'Rourke, um, I mean, here's the amazing thing about Beto O'Rourke. He ran in deep red Texas. And Texas is a state that for 30 years now has reliably churned out super conservative politicians. And it's reliably voted in the Electoral College for Republican presidential candidates. And at every single level, Texas is a far redder state than Arizona has been in the last five, ten years. 
Now, the thing about Beto O'Rourke's campaign is he came in, and at the beginning of the campaign, nobody thought he had a snowball's chance in hell of pulling out a victory. And by the end of the campaign, he's up to nearly 49% of the vote. So the idea that Beto O'Rourke's candidacy was somehow a, an epic failure makes no sense. Beto O'Rourke energized the base, and he energized a huge number of new voters who had never previously bothered to vote. And he got the suburbs to come out. And so what you saw in Texas, you saw this sort of speeding up of a demographic change. So, you know, realistically, we could have looked at Texas and said 10 years from now, it will be a purple state. And maybe 12 or 14 years from now, it'll be a blue state. What Beto O'Rourke did was he sped that process up by a decade. And so you saw this huge increase in voter turnout. You saw the bluing of the Houston and Dallas suburbs. You saw the flipping of several congressional seats. So I would very strongly push back against the idea that O'Rourke's candidacy was somehow flawed. It wasn't. It was an extraordinary success. And the other thing that I would add is that although Beto himself did not win, many good Democrats down ticket did win, including the first two Latinas ever to go right. to the House of Representatives from Texas and many other uh, down-ticket candidates benefited from this massive increase in Democratic turnout, especially in the big cities, uh, uh, Houston, uh, Fort Worth, um, Dallas, and and Austin. And that is and that is laying the ground for more victories in the future. Yeah, I, I think when you look at what happened on November 6th, all over the country, you saw this upswelling of enthusiasm for candidates who represented a more socially inclusive vision. And those candidates, because of where the Republican Party is ideologically at the moment, those candidates were Democrats, basically. And you saw this huge surge in voter participation. You saw uh, participation levels that more resembled a presidential election than a midterm. And you saw a huge gap in the numbers voting Democrat versus Republican. So Trump came out the next day and he tried to paint this as somehow a victory for the Republicans because in a few very conservative rural states, they picked up a few Senate seats. But you actually look at the popular vote, and it was an absolute blowout. It, it was one of the most domineering performances by the Democratic Party in a national election in decades. And so I think the lesson isn't, isn't that you know one kind of Democrat wins and one kind doesn't. The lesson is that when you organize on the ground, and when you go door to door, when you explain to people the importance of participation, and when you explain the stakes of this election, when you explain what kind of rights are on the line, when you explain that America's global reputation is on the line, that at the end of the day, a critical mass of American voters looked at the choices and said, look, we don't want anything to do with Trump's Republican Party. It's not the world that we want. And I think that's the lesson of November 6th, is that there's room for a much, much more inclusive and diverse vision of what America is. And if you want to draw uh, comparisons and contrasts with Arizona, Arizona is one state where a Democratic woman flipped a Republican seat. Uh, the other one is right next door in Nevada. Jackie Rosen elected as a Democrat flipping the other uh, vulnerable Republican seat. Uh, Jackie Rosen's campaign was the sort of quintessential uh, labor-run uh, progressive campaign. Uh, how does that compare to Nevada? Well, I mean, 
you know, the, th- the thing about the Jackie Rosen campaign is for most of the last six weeks of that campaign, she was polling a percent or so behind Dean Heller. Yeah. And the reason she managed to stay close to him and the reason she managed to eventually overtake him and win Election Day was because the unions in Las Vegas put an extraordinary effort into voter mobilization efforts. And, you know, we, we think of Las Vegas as the strip and we think of it as, you know, all the glamour that goes with the casinos and, and the bars and everything else. But the other thing about Las Vegas is it's one of America's great union towns at the yes. moment. Yes, And it shows the power that unions can exert when they really put feet on the ground. Um, but I think, you know, when you're talking about Nevada, you're talking about Arizona, if you look at the electoral map now, there's a solid wall of blue from the Canadian border in Washington state down to the Mexican border, San Diego. And now that blue extends through Nevada, it extends through Arizona, Colorado, and New Mexico. And increasingly, it's looking like large parts of Texas are competitive. So if you're a Democratic strategist and you're looking at 2020 and you're looking at 2022 and you're looking at the ways in which the map's going to change over the next few years, there's a very, very good possibility that there's going to be a dominant Western political bloc. And it's going to be a political bloc that serves up alternative models to Trumpism on healthcare access on public transport, on the environment, on sustainable housing, on a whole range of issues, you're going to see this increasingly influential Western politics. And it's not going to be the Western politics of Barry Goldwater. It's going to be the Western politics of all the people we've been talking about, Beto O'Rourke, Kirsten Sinema, and so on over the next few years. If you're just tuned in, we're speaking with Sasha Abramsky. We're talking about lessons from the midterm elections. Sasha, we need to talk about California, where Democrats seem to have won virtually all the House races they were seeking. Let's start with Orange County. According to the nonpartisan Cook Political Report, it's now virtually certain that Orange County will be represented by zero Republicans in Congress in 2019. This is a historic change. You know, you know it's extraordinary. When I was a young man studying politics, Orange County was always pointed to as bedrock conservative America. Yes, yes. You know, it's the place where Richard Nixon came out of. It was the epicenter of Reagan's support. It was the center of the anti-tax revolt. It fueled the tough on crime movement in the early 1990s. It led to the anti-immigration initiatives in the early 1990s. And now you look at it, and one congressional district after another, from Darrell Isis in San Diego through to the neighboring district that Rohrbacher um, represented and so on, They've all gone Democrat. And they're, they're, you're right, there are a couple still outstanding, but they're now very strongly leaning Democrat as the final votes are tallied. So something has changed. And part of it is, again, the demographics, who's voting, who lives in those counties and who's voting. But part of it is also the sheer level of alienation that affluent and educated voters feel towards the modern incarnation of the Republican Party, that it's a white nationalist party that just does not speak to the values and the interests of Californian voters. And so you've now look, you look at California, and the Republican dominance is limited to this handful of counties and this handful of extraordinarily conservative inland empire cities. But other than that, it's essentially an entirely blue zone at this point. Let me just uh, underline the historic nature of the transformation of Orange County that you talked about uh, 
the, it, not just the state, it hasn't shaped just the state of California, but the entire nation. Barry Goldwater's 1964 campaign, which defined the modern conservative movement, started in Orange County. It was because the Orange County Republicans organized uh, against Nelson Rockefeller at the Republican National Convention, which was in San Francisco in 1964, that that the Republican Party became the Goldwater Party, and then the Reagan uh, Party. And Reagan, the Reagan campaign, the idea of Reagan for governor came out of conservative money and and strategists in in Orange County. Um, so really, all of the national right wing Republican Party can trace most, a lot of its origins to Orange County, California. Of course, it was also Orange County where the Birch Society uh, uh, dominated and tried to take over the Republican Party, and they were fought off by the Goldwaterites. Um, and now uh, I teach, I'm, a, of course, a faculty member at UC Irvine, Katie Porter, my colleague in the UCI Law School, an ally of Elizabeth Warren, is going to win the House seat from Irvine occupied by Mimi Walters, who's voted with Trump most of the time. Um, Katie Porter last night was ahead by 3,797 votes. Uh, that's about 51%. It's going to go up uh, every day. Uh, it's interesting that the pundits, I like to go back to our friends, the pundits, said that a Democrat on the left of the Democratic Party, like Katie Porter, a disciple of Elizabeth Warren couldn't carry Republican districts like uh, Irvine. Irvine has been Republican ever since there were voters in Irvine, and and uh, Katie Porter really refutes that analysis in the in the most direct uh, way. She ran on Medicare for all and abolishing ICE. Uh, this is the district uh, where Goldwater Republicanism took root. This is the district where John Wayne himself lived. Uh, so we're celebrating Katie Porter's impending uh, victory in Irvine uh, today. Well, it's a, it's a good thing to celebrate. And, you know, quite honestly, when you look across the country, you, you, you talked about Medicare for all and you talked about some of these other issues that progressive Democrats have pinned their hopes on. The extraordinary thing about Tuesday, November 6th, was that even in dyed-in-the-wool conservative states like Idaho and Utah and Nebraska, voters decided they wanted to expand Medicaid, that they actually liked the Affordable Care Act and the fact that it gave access to Medicaid to low-income residents. And so you had this situation in states which have elected Republicans for decades that they took power out of the hands of the Republican leadership and said, look, on these bread-and-butter issues, we no longer trust you to make the right decision. And so I think something happened, and the more you dig into the numbers and the more you dig into the polling around November 6th, and the more you look at who voted and the reasons they voted the way they did, this is going to be seen with hindsight as one of the most important elections in modern America, because it reset a moral course. And, you know, Trump's obviously in power at the moment, and that's a catastrophe as far as I'm concerned. But what the American people said as a collective on November 6th was, we don't like these policies. They voted against Trump on immigration. They voted against Trump on health care access. They voted against the Republicans on their tax cuts, on every single major issue that impacts quality of life, that impacts the kind of a country we're going to live in. On every major issue, when you look at the polling numbers, the Republican Party and its Trumpian incarnation was just thumped. It was rejected from coast to coast. And I think that's what's going to be the real sort of story here a year from now is that people are fundamentally rethinking 
what political priorities they have. And as they do that, I think what's going to happen is the Republican Party is going to shrink and shrink and shrink in terms of its electoral viability. One more thing. I just want to spend our last few minutes here. Slight change of of topic to uh, where Trump is at uh, this week. Trump M- Monday was Veterans Day. David Remnick at the New Yorker uh, had an interesting piece uh, contrasting Obama on Veterans Day with Trump on Veterans Day. He looked up Obama's last speech on Veterans Day. Obama went to Arlington National Cemetery, laid the traditional ceremonial wreath. It was a week after the midterms that year. Uh, in, in Obama's remarks on Veterans Day, he said it was hard to forge unity from our great diversity. That's a quote. But he said that our military was, quote, the single most diverse institution in our country. Soldiers, sail, sailors, airmen, marines represent every shade of humanity, immigrant and native-born, Christian, Muslim, Jew, and non-believer alike, all forged into common service, close quote. That was Obama on Veterans Day. You know, it's, at the time it seemed pretty conventional. We didn't really pay much attention to it. Of course, it's all true. But then look at this year. Trump didn't even go to Arlington on Veterans Day. The first president who ever did not do that. Uh, Trump has, the L.A. Times reports, retreated into a cocoon of bitterness and resentment because because he knows, as you say, he knows he's losing. Your final well, thoughts. I, I, my, my, my final thoughts are the comparison of Obama and Trump rhetorically makes no sense because Trump, Trump is one of the least eloquent, most bombastic, most narcissistic, most vitriolic politicians on the scene. And Obama, whether you liked his politics or not, he was one of the most eloquent of speakers. So rhetorically, it makes no sense to compare the two. But in terms of actions, when you look at what Trump did over the last few days, he went to France for the 100th anniversary of the armistice of World War I. He missed the major ceremonies that were going on then, including the peace summit. He sent out a series of gratuitous and almost insane tweets against Macron, who is one of America's closest allies. He came back to the United States. He made these horrendous comments about California and the wildlife fires. And instead of issuing statements of sympathy, he decided to attack California and threatened to withhold federal funds. And it's gotten worse since then. Every day he's making these crazy tweets about voter fraud and people voting in disguise. And when you look at this man, you're looking at somebody who's unraveling. You're looking at somebody who really sounds increasingly paranoid, delusional, and quite honestly, somebody who, if you bumped into them on the street, you think they were off their medications. (laughs) The idea that this is the most powerful man on earth, it's absolutely heartbreaking, but it's also quite terrifying, because I think we really are looking at a president and a presidency in deep, deep psychological turmoil. Sasha Abramsky reviews politics for us. Sasha, thanks so much. Great to have you on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks again. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, women in politics in 2018. Katha Pollitt will comment, that's in a minute, on KPFK when Trump Watch continues.
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening Jerry quickly. But first, 2018, the year of the woman in American politics. For comment, we turn to Katha Pollitt poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. She also writes for The New Yorker, The New York Times op-ed page, and other publications. And she's the author most recently of the book Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. We reached her today in Manhattan. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Well, let's start with the big picture. Uh, Emily's List is sort of the the gold standard for pro-choice Democratic women candidates. The number of women who contacted Emily's List, who were trained by Emily's List, and who were endorsed by Emily's List and then won in 2018 is pretty overwhelming. Can you summarize any of this for us? Well, it, uh, this cycle, Emily's List trained over 5,000 women to run for office, um, and it endorsed Let's see, it endorsed 64 women for the House, and 23 candidates won so far, um, and that was enough to flip the House. Enough to flip the House. And as I read, so 23 women got elected to the House for the first time. How many new first-time Republican women got elected to the House? Uh, I believe it was one. One. One is the correct number. 23 (laughs) to one. To one. <laughs> I, uh, I'm speechless. Please, please, what does this mean? Well, I think the Republicans are becoming the party of white men. Um, and the Democrats are becoming the party of everybody else. Um, <laughs> I think that sums I, it up pretty well, actually. Yeah, I, an, interesting, an interesting statistic I came across, I hope I'm getting this right, is that, okay, 30 percent of the Democratic delegation is now 40% women, and 30% of that 40% are women of color. So women of color are represented among women, Democratic women, at approximately their demographic percentage, Uh Um, whereas that is very far from the case with the Republicans who had one black woman, Mia Love, and I, I think her race might still be being contested undecided them. still they're undecided, still counting yeah. trump didn't trump didn't like her um, so um it was really uh great for women um there are now nine and if stacy abrams pulls it out 10 women government governors um including um the governor of kansas uh laura kelly at which also has a woman representative sharice davids who is one of two uh, Native American women in the in the new Congress, and she's also a lesbian and a mixed martial arts. <laughs> she's she's, so she's she, your typical your typical Democrat. Just your typical Kansan. <laughs> um, and then uh, another, uh, there were two Muslim women. Um, and let's name them. Is, let's name them: Michigan's Rashida Tlaib and Minnesota's Ilhan Omar. Yes, um, and. Uh, one thing I want to mention, because it's very significant, that even women who didn't win still shook things up. Uh, in on Long Island, Luba Gretchen Shirley lost her race, um, but against Peter King. But 
she will go down in history because she sued to be allowed to use campaign funds for babysitting. Yeah. She has two small children, and she won. And, you know, that's a big obstacle to women running is that they've got kids at home, uh, everything, you know, running is running for Congress is a big, big full-time job. And um, so I think this is going to encourage other women at that stage in their life to and, run. And let me name just a, a few of the other uh, oh, outstanding victories of Democratic women candidates for the House. Texas elected its first two Latinas to Congress, Veronica Escobar in El Paso and Sylvia Garcia in Houston. And then there are those four young black women who we've heard quite a bit about, all first-time candidates, Ayanna Presley in Massachusetts, Johanna Haynes in Connecticut, Laura Underwood in Illinois, and in suburban Atlanta, where a white Democratic man failed to flip a Republican district in that special election, a black woman succeeded this time, anti-gun activist Lucy McBath. And of course, there's our hero, the youngest woman ever to go to Congress, the Democratic Socialist from the Bronx and Queens, the wonderful Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez AOC, a great roster. Yes, um, I, I have hope. <laughs> I have more hope than I had before the election. Let's talk uh, a little bit about Arizona, because in Arizona there were three candidates for Senate, all of whom were women. There was a Trumpish woman uh, running, uh, Martha, Martha McSally. McSally. There was a the victorious Democrat, Kirsten Cinema, And then there was a Green candidate who you had. We had all been concerned, and in fact you had tweeted the day after the election that it looked like the the woman running as a Green had caused the defeat of Kirsten Cinema. Things have changed since that day. Yes, I'm I'm very glad that that's true. Um, I didn't. I, I did do a little outraged Facebook post about that because the number of people who voted Green was uh, would have put um, had they voted for Kristen Cinema would have put her way over the top. Um, but as it turned out, she won anyway. So all is forgiven. And Let's str- just all be friends. <laughs> the strange thing is that the woman who was running as a Green quit the Green Party and endorsed uh, Kirsten Cinema, but remained on the on the ballot anyway. Yes, she she resigned like three days before the election. I mean, she um, took her name out of contention, but it was there on the ballot. And you know, one of the things about the new way we're doing elections where a lot of people vote early and a lot of people do mail-in voting, yeah. is that people can make up their minds before everything is known. Yeah. Things can change. Yeah. So if you voted for this Green and then she withdraws, then, you know, too bad for you. Okay. I mean, you're, you're really out of luck. You would have made a different choice if you knew she wasn't going to be there. Um, so uh, other things that were really great. Okay. This is, seems incredible, but the Pennsylvania congressional delegation had no women before this election. Astounding. Not one. Yes. Um, and now there will be four. That's, a, that's an amazing uh, change. And, of course, that yeah. was partly because of redistricting. The gerrymandering was eliminated. And what happens when you get rid of gerrymandering? You elect women. Yeah. And uh, in New Jersey, New Jersey was really interesting because it now has a congressional delegation that is 11 Democrats and Chris Smith, the uh, 
anti-abortion fanatic, um, very conservative. Um, and it went up from one woman to two women. So that's a 100% increase. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, I wonder what you think about the strategy that the Democrats adopted of, uh, in red districts, running Democratic women who were military veterans. This is something that had never been tried on this scale before, or so systematic. And it sort of worked. It looks like six uh, Democratic women military veterans who ran as Democrats are going to go to Congress. Um, well, that's up from four, so that's not like a huge increase. So I wonder just what you think. Is, I mean, you and I both come out of the Vietnam anti-war movement. Yes. We've kind of been against the military our yes. whole lives. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about this idea of running women military veterans to challenge Republicans in red districts? Well, I have complicated thoughts about it. Um, I I would like to see us become less military, militarily inclined. Um, but it doesn't isn't to say that if someone is a military veteran, they're going to be pro-war. Yeah. Pro-war. Say that Donald Trump with his five deferments. Um, and I think a good thing about it is that just thinking about it from the perspective of women candidates is that a veteran, a woman veteran does have a little bit of inoculation from the common belief that women, they're nice, but they're very soft. They don't really understand how the world works, um, and they particularly don't understand how foreign policy and military matters work. And also, it really does point out, to run a woman military candidate really does say to Donald Trump, as I think all these women did, you know, you're really unqualified. <laughs> <laughs> We're here to tell you. <laughs> We're here to tell you. You really are unqualified. Um, but, of course, I would rather that than uh, fetishize the military that we fetishized peacemakers and teachers and doctors and nurses and, um, you know, ordinary people who are um, not, Involved in um, the business of killing people. Yeah, the black the black uh, uh, woman who won in the Chicago suburbs uh, was it, it has been a a, a nurse. Uh, that's that's the kind of candidate you're interested in. Well, yeah, I think we need yeah, Lauren Underwood. Lauren Underwood. Lauren Underwood. Lauren Underwood. I contributed to her. I contributed to all these people. <laughs> You know, I mean, I think I, a lot. I read an article today about Act Blue, which is something you should devote a show to, which is that online yeah. system for donate for making small donations, which has completely changed the funding map for a lot of candidates. And they it, they quoted people who had donated like seven thousand dollars in tiny donations of like ten dollars a time. Mm, mm, it's mm. kind of addictive. Well, you're uh, you're the go-to person on abortion politics, and we need to talk about um, the anti-abortion initiatives that passed in Alabama and in West Virginia. What what did these say, and where do we stand now in Alabama and West Virginia? Well, you wouldn't want to be a pregnant woman there. Um, uh, it, Alabama passed a ballot measure which. Uh, established a state policy that prohibits state funds from being used for abortions. Now, it's not like they were using a lot of them already, um, but now even fewer. And it, But even more important than that, it stated 
it's a trigger law. If Roe is overturned, then Alabama will has already said we're, we recognize and support the sanctity of unborn life, um, and if Roe is overturned, they will immediately move to ban abortion there. West Virginia was in a way even worse because it's a it's a state constitutional amendment. Um, yeah, because a judge uh, a couple of decades ago said that the state constitution mandated that state Medicaid pay for abortions, and so this will get around that. And so about 1,500 women got an abortion last year with Medicaid funds, poor women, and now that will be just about zero. In West Virginia? In West Virginia, a very poor state. Uh, Abortion also was uh, in an initiative in Oregon uh, that was uh, defeated. Do you know the story yes. there? Yes. Uh, there was a similar measure on the ballot in Oregon. And Oregon is the most pro-choice state. Oregon is the only state out of all 50 that has not qualified Roe in some way, uh, tending to mean less right to abortion, less access to abortion. Um, and so it is you know, holding the banner high, and there was this move to ban... Uh, publicly funded abortion there, and that failed. Um, 62% of voters opposed that measure, so that's good. That's good. That's good. <clears throat> yeah. Also in the Senate, while we uh, we elected two new Democratic women to replace Republican men from Arizona and Nevada, uh, two women Democratic incumbent senators were defeated, Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota and Claire McCaskill in Missouri, both replaced by Republican men. wonder if you have any comment on that. Well, I think that's very sad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Heidi Heitkamp, it's this thing where you're punished for the one thing you do that's good, yes. um, that, that stands out, and she voted against Kavanaugh, knowing that this would you know, not stand her in good stead with the voters. And she did it anyway. And she was the only person who did that. Yes, so we we regret, and she was defeated by by 10 points. She was defeated by a lot. Of course, Republicans, the day that she won six years ago, Republicans started plotting on how they were going to change yeah. the electoral laws of North Dakota so that she would never win again. And that included some vote suppression that seems to have been uh, effective. Well, yeah, I think vote suppression is the other big story, disenfranchisement and suppression, um, which we're seeing play out in Florida and Georgia and who knows where else as well. Um, And, you know, you just wonder if we really have even a formal democracy anymore. Well, I think in the states that have uh, Democratic control and Democratic attorney generals, the, the principle is count every yeah. vote. And in the states yeah. that have Republican governors and Republican attorney generals, the goal is, uh, is to repress Democratic turnout. Yes. And that's why it's a very good thing that Nancy Pelosi has said that one of the first items of business in the new Congress is going to be passing laws that protect the right to vote and make it easier to vote. Because, you know, not everybody has an ID to buy their cereal. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're referring to our president. Maybe you should explain that maybe not everybody knows how important it is to have an ID. among the many crazy tweets that keep us all so fascinated, (laughs) um, Donald Trump said 
Uh, Here, I actually have the quote. I have the quote. Okay, read the quote. If you buy a box of cereal, you have a voter ID. They try to shame everybody into calling it racist. Uh, but but when you say you want voter ID, but voter ID is a very important thing, close quote. <laughs> I mean, what is he even talking about? Um. <laughs> We're calling him a serial liar here. A serial liar, yeah. And then the whole thing about wearing people vote many times because they go back to their car and change their clothes. Yeah, don't you I do mean, that? <laughs> Well, um, it's it's pretty amazing. It's pretty it's pretty amazing. Uh, I'm sorry we are out of time. Katha Pollitt, poet, essayist, award-winning columnist for the Nation. Read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. One more thing. It's time just enough for one minute of your Minnesota moment news from my hometown of St. Paul. Uh, The St. Paul City Council passed the $15 minimum wage yesterday, and the mayor signed it. St. Paul now joins Minneapolis with a $15 minimum wage. And most important, the St. Paul uh, law does not exempt tipped wages. So waiters uh, and servers get the same minimum wage as everybody else. This has been your Minnesota Moment. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests, John Nichols and Sasha Abramsky. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Stay tuned for This Is Happening, Jerry Quickly, coming up next on KPFK. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed any part of this show, any of our recent shows, you can listen on, online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com, where you'll find more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.